hello hi welcome to truly fabulously monstrous a podcast about true crime and cryptids i am half of your host patty james i'm your other half of host ace hi ace hi hattie like i know you said that you like were, were switching the name but i still keep expecting you to say like your past host name and then like my brain kind of short circuits for like a millisecond when you say ace <laughs> <laughs> who are you people well it's it's There's weird no because real, like huge reason for it other beyond the fact that kevin just didn't feel right yeah and that's fine and that's totally fine and i'll i respect that um but it's it's just funny because like the first what like 12 13 episodes six weeks we did the podcast Mm -hmm. you were going by kevin and it's yeah i'm i'm also very tired it's been a long long day i've been up since 5 30 it's been a long day i mean you have the added uh the the addedness of the your harbinger and your your married life yeah (laughs) just the harbinger is the the most exotic like getting up at 5 30 to help the husband get him ready because he had to go even though i'm working from home this week because we're still doing like an a b schedule so i'm working from home one week in the office the next and this is a work from home week so technically i didn't even need to be out of bed until like 8 25 but uh so the harbinger goes to uh the on-site daycare at the husband's work so they both had to be in the same building a county over for no later than 8 a.m ideally by 7 45 a.m so that um so that drop off could be seamlessly done and then husband could be working by eight um so what uh i we were up at 5 30 in the morning and the goal was once they leave the house i'm gonna go back to sleep (laughs) <laughs> and i did not go back to did sleep. not happen no seat no seat for hattie well i had the it was just one of those days where i work in 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 my building I, i'm in two departments technically i work in two departments and i kind of was running back and forth between both departments constantly today because it's summer reading is happening so that just means <sighs> A lot of analytics and stats to run and prizes to hand out. Yeah, I can get that. Yeah. A lot of label printing. A lot of, I I went like number blind because I was writing phone numbers just for like an hour. To this episode, it's my turn to bring y'all a true crime. And this is one that I think I first was put onto this topic. It was one of those like... Um, either a, like a BuzzFeed listicle or like a cracked article where it's like top 10 1800s era crimes that you probably never heard of but are really really weird yeah uh, I'll just say I know what you're doing because uh, I vaguely remember the first time we mm. recorded this uh, two years ago and that's one of the reasons I had my husband bring me my uh, wide array of medications including uh-huh. my muscle relaxer and my uh, my happy pills so okay. that I can be like nice and relaxed and not tense up because uh, I remember last time I mentally checked out for happy yeah I, this one I probably should probably do like a broad um Content warning, trigger warning. There's going to be some uncomfortable medical discussions because this case has to do with um, 
uh, late 19th century like wellness culture and question ethically questionable medical practices by people who were not legitimate medical practitioners so if that kind of content makes you uncomfortable or in any way uh, is triggering for you uh, perhaps give this episode a pass and come back next time when we talk about a cryptid uh, should we also do a content warning for dis discussion on disordered eating yes that's yes right. that's another thing because today i'm going to talk to you all about linda hazard <sighs> she was a character okay so this uh all takes place in the pacific northwest uh hot spot for all things uh weird and uh weird <laughs> Ah uh, uh, yes, the great old Pacific no Northwest. Their logo, home for all things weird and weird. <laughs> uh, so uh, more specifically, this is in Kitsap County, Washington, uh, and a small unincorporated community called Olala, and it's across uh, the Puget Sound from Seattle. So it was settled by uh, Norwegian, Scandinavian, uh, immigrants this was the general uh, settlers in addition to you know as it goes without saying the indigenous people that had already lived there for centuries yes it was uh colonized by yes, colonized um by, by scandinavian people immigrants uh and so in the 1860s uh it had kind of developed into a commerce center due because it had uh, good seawater access being that it was right near the puget sound a lot of businesses built out onto piers, shipping industry was thriving, moving materials and goods, and there was a ferrying system that was always moving people back and forth across the sound. So by the end of the 19th century, most of the old growth forest had been stripped bare because this country is good at uh, deforestation. So, woohoo. Uh, and Yay. so <laughs> So with that deforestation, that meant that there was now ample opportunity for farming and new commerce arriving through growth of strawberries and vegetables, which is, yeah, Pacific Northwest, that's a good area to grow strawberries and other berries, but all the notes I found said strawberries, so we're going with strawberries. It was also a flourishing logging industry and boat building, once again, because of all the forests being uh, cut down. Another thing that Olala had to its name, in the early 20th century, there was a health retreat slash sanitarium by the name of the Institute of Natural Therapeutics at Wilderness Heights. I'm sorry, that's just a pretentious name. But like lots of health retreats have pretentious names. I think it's required. <laughs> it was owned and operated by Dr. Linda Burfield Hazard. Patients would come to the sanitarium seeking cures for their illnesses, quote, their illnesses, or for general help to change their lifestyle for the better. Uh, soon, though, the sanitarium would be known by a different name, and that name is Starvation Heights. <laughs> a lot of the notes that I got, I will say a lot of the notes that I got for this topic come from a, uh, a book by that exact name, uh, Starvation Heights, which was written by uh, Greg Olson. Very good book, highly recommend. Lots of information in that book, like more information than I can possibly have in this these notes. He okay. did a lot of great research. 
And by 1911, Olala would make the front page of international newspapers for something that no town wants to be remembered for. Murder. Yay! <laughs> so, a couple things. Uh, despite using the title of doctor, Linda Hazard did not have a medical degree. That is illegal. This was the this was the 19th century. This was in 20th century. This was early i feel like that was never okay though yeah but it was kind of especially like in like the late 19th century because i mean the communication was not great between places what would you do you had to write a letter by the time a letter arrived saying hey that person's not a doctor you could pack up your bags and be on to the next town be like i'm a doctor and you can't prove otherwise for several months and then in that time, you could just be drunk throughout the entire country. You know, you have ghosts in your blood. Do cocaine about it. Old timey doctoring all over the place. True. Anyway, so yes, uh, Linda Hazard, no medical degree. Not even uh, any formal training as any kind of medical, sp- like she didn't have any nurse training. She just kind of... An orderly cleaning bedpans? No, nothing. Okay. So just, just um, a, a legitimate, a full-on quack. Also, uh, there was a, a loophole in a lot of um, uh, medical things that uh, kind of grandfathered in some practitioners of alternative medicine, and that loophole allowed her to get a license to practice medicine. So she wasn't a doctor, but she did have a license to practice. <sighs> so, you know, it's worse. It's worse than it is. <laughs> You think it's she's bad, not just faking it, it, she's faking it, and they're saying, okay, here's a license saying you're allowed to. Yes. Oh. Not worse. So Specifically, awful. she was licensed by the state of Washington as a, quote, fasting specialist. No! Yep. What? I'm yes. sorry, a what? A fasting specialist. Mick what? <laughs> because fasting as a medical tool is not a new phenomenon. Like, they, that's kind of that's always been around as a they're like oh what, what what's wrong with you that's wrong with you okay have you tried have you tried not eating did that fix it you feel better cool fasting it works the only have you tried sticking leeches on it let's stick some leeches on it and you eat a little you stop eating there we go i'm a miracle doctor the only time fasting should be done is if you're getting like a camera shoved up your butt or down your throat um or if you need to get like certain blood work done and they're like don't eat after midnight or if you're getting surgery and they say don't eat after midnight like those are the only times fasting should ever in the history of anything be medically a thing and like as a medical tool it's not it wasn't a new phenomena but obviously there's as we're going to get into, there were medical practitioners that took this idea to the extremes. Not just this woman, like there were lots of other people. There was uh, the American physician Edward H. Dewey was a pioneer of therapeutic fasting. He was the inventor of the no breakfast plan. As names of medical treatment go, it's a terrible name. You need to be better at naming things. This man, he was an actual doctor. Like he went to medical school. He got a degree. He was a physician. He legitimately. Do we know that? Or did he just say he did? And like, here's my cardboard construction paper um, that I Googled, like doodled on with crayon uh, that says I have a medical degree. No, he had a medical degree. Well, he was a man. Of course he had a medical degree. (laughs) (laughs) 
so he, but he, so he's a doctor, he went to medical school, got a degree, was a physician, and he legitimately believed the best way to treat disease was to fast. He advocated for long fasts, and he firmly believed that abstinence from food could cure insanity and mental disorders. He, in his 1895 book, The True Science of Living, he claimed, quote, every disease that afflicts mankind develops from more or less habitual eating in excess of the supply of gastric juices. Uh, the term gastric juices just reminds me of that doctor who studied the guy who had the hole in his stomach. Yes, Dr. Beaumont. Dr. Beaumont and his friend, uh, Alexis de... Hang on. Name. I have he William looked, Beaumont, like, yeah, he, he I literally have him yeah. um, bookmarked. Uh, uh, for I'm just saying, he was a freak, and he absolutely put his tongue in that man's uh, fistula hole. You cannot convince me otherwise. They call him the father of gastric physiology, by the way. He absolutely, he used and loved the term gastric juices. I will not be told otherwise. Alexis St. Martin, by the way. Alexis St. Martin. I knew it was Alexis something French. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this case. I just think that's a fascinating story. <laughs> so Dewey's no breakfast plan argued that people should completely abstain from breakfast and only consume two meals per day as he attributed all disease and psychological problems to excessive eating. So yeah, uh, so long story short, this guy, he, he's wrong. He's incorrect. Yes. He's wrong. Uh, so Linda Hazard followed the teachings of Dewey and she actually studied under him for a brief time. So like she... It was like this guy knows. I he hope he feels bad for that. I mean, he's he's dead. But <laughs> I hope they're he's, all dead. Everyone. In this I hope he felt bad for that. And if you uh, and if you believe in an afterlife, I hope he's in the afterlife feeling bad currently. Put his heart on the scale, and Anubis goes, "This is too heavy." And he's like, "Yeah, I trained Linda Hazard." And they're like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> So like her mentor, Hazard believed that the root of all disease lay in food and more specifically too much food. So anyway, she wrote a, she self-published a book in uh, 1908 because even in the uh, early 1900s, we cannot escape the industry of self-publication <laughs> of terrible <laughs> books and being self-published <laughs> can never escape. Oh God. She wrote a self-published book called Fasting, The Cure for Disease. And in which she says, appetite is craving, hunger is desire. Craving is never satisfied, but hunger is relieved when want is supplied. And that sounds like uh, some, like the riddle of a cave troll. Like I, that's a troll on a bridge saying, you must answer me these riddles three before you trip trap crossing my bridge. Okay, really. so hunger <laughs> is satisfied when want is supplied. That want is um for food. food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want this food. I want food. <laughs> so essentially what she believed is that by not eating, the body could rid itself of toxins. You know what rids your body of toxins? Your liver and your kidneys. Which only work when you eat when and you hydrate. Eat. <laughs> yes, and I, yes, when you eat and drink and stay hydrated. Yes. So she believed that by not eating, you could rid yourself of toxins. So she, she believed that these toxins were causing all health problems in the world. And to give your body the chance to heal itself, you had to stop eating 
for like periods of time. She okay. wasn't like advocating not eating at all. She was advocating fat, like intermittent fasting, basically. Uh, so I, I'm pretty sure, like, if, uh, if Linda has it around today, she'd be pushing the keto diet. That's, that's just what I'm the saying. Keto diet, or I don't know, maybe she would have gotten on like the jelly juice trend. The juice she cleanse. Probably would have gotten on the jelly juice trend. The, is that the juice cleanse where you have to have like? Um, it's the cabbage uh, juice. It's the fermented cabbage juice that oh. makes you shit yourself to death. Oh, I thought it was the one where it's like all you can have for like seven days is like lemon juice squeezed into water with honey and paprika, and you have to take that with a laxative in the morning. Oh no! See, that sounds better. Like I would, without the laxative part, I would rather do lemon juice and honey than what this woman was this poison this woman was peddling um if you listen to one episode of the sawbones podcast i recommend the jilly juice episode like uh, sydney goes into an amazing detail about this woman who is peddling this basically it is fermented cabbage juice that is like got like tons of like pickling salt in it like it's basically cabbage brine it's super salty and you're supposed to drink, I don't know, like a gallon of it a day. And then you basically, you should like shit out every single fluid that's ever been in your body ever. A guy died doing this. I mean, he was, he was, um, he died from not treating his very, very, very severe late stage cancer. But like, he was talked into not following like his cancer plan by like, the wellness culture surrounding this woman who was like, if you drink my jelly juice, it will cure your cancer because it's a cure-all. And he died and it was very sad. And it was very like, I'm not saying that's what killed him. Like he died, like his cancer killed him. But I feel like that his death is on her hands. Yeah. Um, I think the closest to that I've ever heard of not the death but like the the cleanse you're talking about is it's actually one that I'm ashamed to say I fell for back when I had disordered eating in the um more restrictive uh and it's the um the, it's the cabbage soup where I saw that recipe all you the eat fact that the recipe looks good that would have got me if I it, like it, it did and but the thing is that's all you eat for like two weeks and then the force of your flatulence lights your house on fire. <laughs> like that, but like I, I remember, like I, 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 it was I, fine. Looked the, I looked at the recipe for the soup. I'm like, that looks like a great soup. But if that's all you're eating, oh my God, <laughs> the things that will come out of your body <laughs> will strip yeah. the paint off a footlocker. Like, yeah. So, okay, back to the, back to the horrible, horrible thing that is Linda Hazard. Uh, she, definitely was she was real into the idea of fasting as a medicinal tool and like having deep historical roots like ancient greeks had ideas about fasting where Uh, were her sources okay her specific thing was uh, the ancient greeks held that while eating demons could enter your mouth so if you just didn't eat the demons couldn't enter your mouth i want i want her sources uh, she also used uh, Jesus's fast in the desert as justification for this medical practice. You know, uh, using uh, using the Bible as justification for medical practice. Some, I, who would do such a thing? Who would ever ever do such a thing? For <laughs> uh, awful people who yeah. are not in the place yeah. once they die that they preach you go to from listening to them. So, so the people who run Hobby Lobby. 
Yes. Okay. And Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so to those who raised concerns regarding the long-term effects of fasting would be sure to have on the human body, she very quickly assured them that if a patient were to die while following her health plan, that their death was not the result of perpetual fasting, but rather the inevitable consequence of vitality sapped to the last degree by organic imperfection. So basically, if you died while following her advice, following her advice wasn't what killed you. It's that you didn't follow her advice good enough. I really don't like that. <laughs> so if you died following her treatment, it wasn't because you starved to death or from severe dehydration or from shitting out every fluid in your body because of all the enemas. It's because a lifetime of eating real food until that point damaged your body beyond repair. <sighs> Describe the look on your face right now. <laughs> I don't know. You describe the look on my face. I can't see my face. I'm staring I know. Off. It's very just the gazing off into the distance and the deep sigh that just like shook your body. <laughs> In her quest for true health, she came to believe that the best path was to let the digestive system rest through the practice of near total fasts for days or even weeks. During these fasts, her patients were permitted to consume only very small servings of vegetable broth, and their systems were flushed with daily enemas and simulated with vigorous massage. Not where they got the enemas, right? I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> okay. So you just uh, went straight from flushed with enemas to given vigorous massage. And I'm wondering know. if there's some prostate action happening. I'm honestly, I do not know if I'm assuming, I'm assuming the massages were external massages, but I cannot confirm that. I do know that uh, from like some other sources, nurses at the sanitarium would say that the massages sometimes sounded more like beatings. Oh. So I'm going to guess external massages. Okay. Uh, unappealing as this all might sound she attracted a lot of patients something about I don't know something about wellness culture if you make it sound unpleasant and terrible a bunch of people are going to be like that sounds great sign me up jade egg absolutely I'd love to <laughs> that. Like, oh, sorry okay <laughs> we can't get distracted by <laughs> oh my god uh, one such patient was a woman named Daisy Maud Hagland, who was a Norwegian immigrant who was under hazards care for 50 days before she died of starvation. Although her official cause of death was uh, stomach cancer. Of course the, it was. The treatment that she received at the Wilderness Heights probably didn't do anything to help the stomach cancer. So another such patient of hazards was, er oh, I love this name, Earl Edward Erdman. Beautiful name. Beautiful name. Who, while staying at Wilderness Heights, he kept a diary of all the food he received. And it is quite detailed. February 1st. Um, I won't read, I won't read all of it. It's a lot. It is a lot. But basically it covers, it's a pretty much a daily diary entry for the month of February. Okay. February 1st, saw Dr. Hazard began treatment on this date. No breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper mashed soup like a bisque i'm guessing yeah this might be before she like she probably didn't initially start out with like only vegetable broth like maybe she like kind of eased people into it like tricked them into 
Okay. They'd be like, yeah, we feed you real food for the first two days. Okay. Uh, February 5th through 7th, one orange breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. It goes on for that. Basically, uh, the food that he got usually consisted of a piece of fruit for breakfast, some type of soup for lunch and for dinner. Uh, and that goes on through February until we get to February 16th. One cup hot strained tomato soup AM. Slept better last night. Head quite dizzy. Eyes yellow, streaked in red. Oh, no. February 17th. Ate three oranges today. So one thing we can say for these patients, they're not getting scurvy because she is giving them oranges. That's good. That's uh, one thing we can give her credit for um and that's all i'm giving her credit yeah. for proceed uh there's a few more days of that kind of thing like uh basically uh fruit and uh strained or mashed soup uh we get to february 20th eight strained juice of two small oranges 10 a.m dizzy all day uh strained juice of two small oranges at 5 p.m uh, February 21st, one cup settled and strained tomato broth. Backache today, just below ribs. Uh, goes on a little bit more. We get to February 24th, slept better Wednesday night. Kind of frontal headache in the a.m. Ate two small oranges, one and a half cups of hot tomato soup at 6 p.m. Heart rate hit up to 95 per minute and sweat considerable. Oh, no. And the last entry, at least in this list, was February 26th. Did not sleep well Friday night. Pain right side, just below ribs and back. Pain quit in night. One half cup tomato broth at 10 a.m. Felt better afternoon than for the last week. He died on March 28th of starvation at the Seattle General Hospital. Oh, no. The most remembered of Hazard's patients, however, were Claire and Dora Williamson. Uh, they were two sisters who were the daughters of a well-to-do English Army officer, and they are the primary focus of the book Starvation Heights by Greg Olson. So uh, Claire and Dora Williamson, uh, both sisters were over 30, but they did not consider themselves to be spinsters. They were both very fit, and trim-figured, youthful complexion, their looks as well as their considerable money made them targets for people who tried to convince them that they had their best interests at heart. So two unmarried sisters who came from money, were well-off, liked to travel, and not be married. I like them. It's like, what do you do? Oh, I'm not married. That is my <laughs> hobby, is not being married. <laughs> And not wearing corsets. That was another thing. Like they were very, like they were very into, they were into wellness culture, but like not the like weird toxic side of it. Like they, genu they genuinely were like trying to make themselves as healthy as possible. They issued constrictive undergarments. They exercised regularly. They were very kind of progressive on that front. They were like, hmm, maybe corsets all the time is not the best thing for my internal organs. So. Apparently that made them weird. <laughs> well, I can I can see. I mean, if everyone wore corsets at the time, it would kind of be like in the seventies when women just stopped wearing their bras. Yeah, bras are not comfortable. No. 
So they had arrived in Quebec from Liverpool by a steamership. They were now making their way across the Canadian provinces, uh, heading for the Pacific coast and like visiting uh, their family along the way who lived uh, all across Canada. Uh, their father had died shortly after uh, Claire, the youngest sister, was born and uh, their mother died when they were both uh, in their teens. They had two other sisters, Ethel and Gertrude, uh, but Ethel and Gertrude had both uh, died of scarlet fever when they were very young. So the family that they have left was like aunts and uncles and cousins. They were close with their former governess, uh, Margaret Conway, who comes back later in the story. They were very well off. They inherited a large uh, amount of money from their grandfather. And uh, at the time, their fortune was worth more than a million dollars, plus land holdings in Canada, the U.S., England, and Australia. And this was a million dollars in then money, not a million dollars in today's money. I'm pretty sure, yes. Wow. So for two single women to control that much of a net worth in 1910, that was pretty... That was pretty incredible. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> now, they were first made aware of the existence of Linda Hazard when they saw an ad for one of her books in the newspaper when they were staying at a very fancy hotel in Vancouver. Neither of the sisters were seriously ill in any way, but both felt that they were afflicted by any number of minor ailments. Dora sometimes complained of swollen glands and rheumatic pain. Uh, Claire had been told by her own physician that she had a dropped uterus, which just okay. sounds unpleasant. So both sisters were firm believers in alternative medicine practices. They were willing to try new treatments uh, as they were developed. They had already given up eating meat and wearing corsets in an attempt to improve their health. Uh, in, uh, in Greg Olson's book, Starvation Heights, he does mention that by the time the Williamson sisters visited North America, they had already been to several other health institutes along the way, all of which promised increased and prolonged health for those who could afford to pay for it. <laughs> and they obviously could pay for it so when they learned about the existence of the institute of natural therapeutics they decided to travel to Alala, washington and they signed up for hazards treatments and they probably had a vision of an institute in the countryside vistas of open fields grazing horses sheep blah 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 beautiful yes, country as you do uh, they were probably surprised when they arrived in Seattle in 1911 and they were told that the sanitarium in Olala wasn't quite ready yet. So instead they were put up in an apartment building in uh, Seattle's Capitol Hill. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the sanitarium wasn't ready yet. Okay, it was still being built. So uh, instead of like a countryside vista of open fields, they were in an apartment in Seattle's Capitol Hill. That sounds so healthy. Mm, yes. <laughs> so uh, he, this apartment is where Hazard began the sisters' treatment. They were, okay, so the treatment consisted of feeding them a watered-down broth made from uh, tinned tomatoes, one cup, twice a day. That's not even like, you think you're like, oh, I'm going to go on this healthy fasting thing and eating only soup made from tomatoes. You think, oh, made from like fresh organic tomatoes? No, from a can. In fact, that this is like before muckrackers had yeah, yeah, food the shady, shady it. things that were happening in the canning industry mm -hmm. and in the food industry. Who knows what was in the your side of botulism? Yeah. So I. Oh. Yeah. I can't. 
just go on. Oh, you hate that? You're gonna really hate this part. Uh, giving them enemas in the bathtub that would last up to three hours at a time. No! Why? That no was so pained that the audio cut out for a second. <laughs> That's Why? No enema should last more than... I don't even know what the time frame for an enema is, but uh, once you're... Th- three hours? Three hours! That's three hours. <sighs> I'm sorry. You just I can just about listen to podcast episodes that last for like one hour. Three hours? Uh... Ooh. Huh. But no, no, just no. Um, but then that raises the question, because this is once again in the bathtub. So you're like, huh? No. What? They the bathtub was outfitted with like canvas supports. Basically, like, they they set up the bathtub so that the bathtub had, like, slings in it that they could, like, rest in while getting like, all of the fluids in their body siphoned out through their butt. So, yeah, they outfitted the bathtub with, like, canvas sling supports. So, because if you're having a three-hour enema, at, at probably at least once you're going to get woozy and blackout. If you're only eating, like, a broth made from tinned tomatoes and you're getting a three-hour anima every day. That was, they started the, when did I say? In February, they started this. By April, the sanitarium was finished being built and they were transferred to the sanitarium in Alala. At this point, in, that's three months, like, they arrived in February, they moved out to the sanitarium in April. Over the course of the those three months, uh, they now each weigh about 70 pounds. Oh, God. So you think at this point, the family of Clarendora probably maybe a little worried about them? Yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure they would have been if they knew what was going on. Okay, so the rest of the Williamson family didn't really kind of like... They didn't really like approve of the uh, Clarendora's like super gung-ho willingness to try every single new alternative medicine fad that they discovered. So they didn't tell their family that they were doing this. Like, in their road trip across visiting families, and then they're like, all right, we're on our way to Seattle. And their family's like, oh, why are you going to Seattle? And they're like, oh, reasons. Uh, Definitely not to have our uh, life-saving sucked away and our enemas multiple hours a day. Oh, God. Definitely not doing that, if that's what you're wondering. So, yeah, their family didn't know this was happening. It And really, no one really thought anything was weird until uh, their former governess and childhood nurse, Margaret Conway, received a telegram from one of the sisters when she was visiting family in Australia. That was the first time anyone knew anything was wrong. The telegram was only a few words. It was likely sent by the sisters in secret, so that they did not alert Hazard, and the telegram was Come SS Marima, May 8th, first class, Claire. So basically, that doesn't say what's wrong. It's the telegram was basically just a like cry for, like, please come get us. Yeah. And so Margaret initially thought the telegram meant that Claire was intending to arrive in Sydney, but she was kind of puzzled that Claire would put emphasis on first class because even though uh, Claire and Dora were very, very rich, they didn't use, they didn't really like 
flaunt their wealth in like the let's always travel first class and no they flaunted it in the let's try this new alternative medicine yeah 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 so she's like okay that's kind of weird that she's like really putting the emphasis on first class so she called the steamship company and she learned that the ss marima was not arriving uh to sydney on may 8th but rather it was departing from sydney on may 8th so she realized she's like oh they're asking me to get on the ship and come find them so something's wrong so she booked passage on the ss marima and departed for vancouver in may so when her boat arrived in vancouver she was met by hazard's husband samuel hazard quick side note samuel hazard is a uh, was a former lieutenant in the army who briefly served jail time for bigamy because he was already married when he married linda hazard okay so there's way too much to get into about uh, samuel hazard that's i would recommend if you want to know all the fun stuff about samuel hazard uh read the book starvation heights because there's several chapters just dedicated to all the weirdness that is Samuel Hazard and how he just kind of got pulled under Linda Hazard's spell. Cause like he said, he was already very like happily married and wasn't going to do anything weird. And then Linda came along and then all of a sudden he's uh, going to jail for bigamy. Cause he's like, man, this woman's awesome. Let's go do weird stuff. So we're like, Oh, okay. Linda, what did you had something going on? <laughs> so, it was at this time that um, Margaret learned uh, when she was met by Samuel Hazard in Vancouver. This is when Margaret learned that Claire Williamson was dead. And oh, Dora was suffering from a delirious mental state that was most likely brought on by severe malnutrition. So Margaret went to the Seattle office of Linda Hazard to demand answers. She was told that Claire had begun her fasting treatment too late and that the poisons had permeated her body too severely for recovery. Once again, it's not my fault she died. She was too far gone already. So then uh, Hazard launches into great detail about the autopsy that she performed on Claire and Margaret's like, why are you telling me this? I don't, I didn't ask. And Wait, Hazard, so she performed the autopsy? Like nope. health of, like the officials, the mortuary, they didn't, like police, she did it? She did it. She did it. And then she embalmed her. And she asked if Margaret would like to see her before she was cremated. I don't know why you would, if you were trying to like hustle something through and cover something up, I don't know why you would ask someone that. But nevertheless, when uh, Margaret viewed Claire's body, uh, Margaret began to have suspicions that it was not actually Claire's body displayed in the coffin because her, the hands were different, her hair was a different color, and her hairline was a different shape. Okay. So... It is possible that severe malnutrition could change what, like, your profile looked like, your skin, like, your skin would be tighter on your skeleton, all that. Uh, but it's also possible that if the hazards knew Margaret was coming, they found a body stand-in so that it would be less apparent how thin and skeletal Claire had become. But we don't, we don't know if that body was Claire's or if like if it could have been a body double and they did hustle through like involved and cremated Claire right away and then found another body to display that's possible we don't really know 
But uh, Margaret, okay, so uh, this in the timeline, Margaret arrives in Alala. She hardly recognized Dora. She says, it was ghastly. I was looking at death's head, a skull with skin drawn tightly over the bones. Overall, she had a bluish tint. That is, I would, that's devastating. Like, that's so sad. Um. Dora, when Dora saw Margaret, she asked her, you have the power to take me away, haven't you? Can you take me away? It had become obvious that by the time Dora wanted to discontinue treatment, she was too weak to leave of her own volition. And it had been Claire that sought the advice and the treatment of Hazard in the first place so empathetically. So Dora had, she'd gone along with her because she went everywhere with her sister. So she's not going to be like, no. Nah, let's pump the brakes on this she's like no i go everywhere with you sure you want to do this thing let's do this thing and now she's too weak to leave on her own and her sister's dead it's yeah this is uh again this is a huge bummer and i'm sorry uh so now at this point uh they're claire and dora the closest family that they have was their uncle and he also made the trip to seattle when he received a telegram from Margaret uh, notifying him of the death of his sister's youngest child. He also saw the body in the coffin that they said was Claire, and he also was like, that doesn't look like Claire. And after uh, he attended Claire's funeral, the Hazards then, surprise, produced a typed will that they claimed was written by Claire that placed Linda and Samuel Hazard in control of the Williamson's assets and estate. Um, no, no. No, no. Oh, surprise. Oh, look at this typed will that we have, you have no proof that it's not real. But during this time, Margaret had insisted on taking the place of the nurse assigned to administer Dora's treatments while she figured out a way to get Dora out of the sanitarium. I guess you figured, like, if I take the place as the person who's administering these treatments, I can both, A, ease up on said treatments so they're not as severe, and also, like, be closer to her and try and get, like, more information about, like, what's happened? How did this all happen? Where, what decisions were made here? So although Dora had asked Margaret to get her out on her first night there, she did retract that request and was determined to stick to Hazard's treatment, but that's most likely because uh, Lynn Hazard, as we kind of know at this point, is uh, very good at manipulating people and knew how to get Dora to believe that she was staying of her own volition. And while she was nursing Dora, Margaret managed to convince her to slightly increase her food consumption to include fruit juices and mashed vegetables in addition to the tomato broth. And she began doing everything she could to appear to be following Hazard's strict dietary guidelines, but also while doing everything she could to to the broths to give them extra sustenance, like adding rice, adding flour, adding cream. Good for her. Yeah. Uh, She also began to see how Linda Hazard had been able to manipulate the two women into following a treatment plan that was literally killing him. She was a master manipulator uh, from Greg Olson's book. 
this is a quote. Linda Hazard, it seemed, was the type of woman who could convince anyone about anything. She could bore her eyes into her listener and speak in an unfaltering, assured manner that demanded complete obedience. I've had teachers like that. That sounds like um, retired nuns who decide to be uh, grade school teachers. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Uh, so during her time looking after Dora, when she found herself in the Hazard's office, Margaret discovered that Dora had signed her power of attorney over to Samuel Hazard in May of 1911. So she took that document, she put it in her apron pocket, she confronted Dora about it, and when asked if she knew what she was signing, Dora admitted that she had thought she was signing a document that would let the Hazards draw checks for the sanitarium payment during a time when she was too sick to draw the checks herself. She had also asked that a check of $583 be drawn from her account to send to one of her uncles in Toronto. That money never made it to Toronto. Surprise! Samuel Hazard transferred the money to his own bank account. And when Margaret asked if Samuel Hazard had done any of Dora's other business dealings for her, she told Margaret, every time I saw him, he always put me off. When he came to talk, I inquired about everything because he offered to see about my land. He asked me if he could do anything in Vancouver. He said he would see about my land and look into it. And when he came back, I wanted to inquire about it. But he always put me off and told me he would see about it later. So these people are just absolute just awful the worst they're the worst uh while margaret was at the sanitarium other patients that were there reached out to her and begged her to help them escape oh no so there was another nurse at wilderness heights that was growing concerned about the treatment of the patients at the sanitarium uh her name was sarah robinson she was present when Claire died and knew that it was the severity of the treatments and not the inherent failure of her organs that caused her death. Surprise. (laughs) Surprise. Uh, She struggled with what to do to get Dora out of the sanitarium. Although Linda Hazard was not a real doctor, she did have enough influence to ensure that nurses at the institution who crossed her would never work again. So if Sarah Robinson didn't play her cards right, her career would be ruined by this woman. But it was Sarah Robinson who confided in Margaret Conway one day while they were folding the towels that were going to be used in like the treatments for that day. She told Margaret, it is time for Miss Dora to leave. You must get her out of here before it is too late for her. There are things about her treatment about which you know nothing. So she went on to tell Margaret of other patients that had died at the hands of Linda Hazard's treatments. She told Margaret about our good old Earl Edward Eardman and his meticulous list uh that he kept during his time at the sanitarium and how in the span of three weeks he had just wasted away to a husk of a person he and before obviously uh we already saw dying at the hospital she told her margaret of how linda hazard's name had been splashed across the headlines as a dangerous practitioner she told her that Uh, Even after that, though, the day after Earl's death, Linda, along with 28 other alternative medicine practitioners, had been granted a license to practice medicine by the State Board of Medical Examiners. No! Yup. 
She also showed Margaret a newspaper clipping in which Linda Hazard talked about the autopsy that she performed on Earl Edward Eardman and how it had been a pre-existing condition that caused his death, not her treatment. And during that autopsy, she discovered that his digestive organs were of infantile size. So, huh, this is another time where someone dies under her care and she performs the autopsy and was like, see, it wasn't my treatment that killed him. Look how not, not my treatment killing him it was. Look at that. So, uh, but that was the, the phrase about the digestive organs being of infantile size. That was the exact phrase that Hazard had used to describe Claire's organs when she told Margaret about autopsying Claire. So clearly she has a script that she's following. Oh God. Sarah Robinson also made one point very clear to Margaret. If Linda Hazard's treatments failed, she would not be held accountable for the deaths of her patients. The State Medical Board of Washington had made sure of that. So after this meeting with Sarah Robinson, Margaret had a plan and she began to put that plan into action. She began packing up the Williamson trunks bit by bit, collecting all of Claire's and Dora's effects that had mysteriously made their ways into the hands of Linda Hazard. Huh, funny how that happens. Margaret then confronted Hazard and told her it was time to collect all of Claire's belongings that she had taken as she and Dora were planning on leaving the sanitarium. Hazard didn't like that, so she got mad and she countered that she had been appointed as Dora's guardian and it was her sister's wish that Dora remain at the sanitarium for the rest of her life. So Margaret basically come back with Uno reverse card, absolutely not. Uh, she countered that until she was shown proof of this from the Kitsap County authorities that deemed Dora to be incompetent to act on her own behalf, that Margaret would be collecting Claire's effects and leaving with Dora on the next ferry launch. So basically, Linda's like, no, it was Claire's wish that Dora remained here forever. And Margaret sends back, oh yeah? Prove it. <laughs> and so... Uh, this was apparently the first time that anyone dared stand up to Linda Hazard. <laughs> that probably explains why her reaction to that was to stomp away making veiled threats. So mature. Very mature. Uh, so she stomps away making veiled threats against Margaret Conway, who is an Australian citizen, daring to make claims on American soil. <laughs> so when told about all of this, Dora was very mystified about this claim of guardianship. She's like, uh, no one told me about any of this and uh, any steps that have been taken about that were obviously without her knowledge or consent so uh, one day when the hazards had left Alala to do business on the mainland Margaret goes into the main town into Alala to send a telegram to the sister's uncle uh, the same uncle who had come for Claire's funeral uh, their uncle's name was John Herbert he arrived in Seattle and he once again met with Linda Hazard in her swanky new office in the city, which was housed at the, get this, the Waldorf Hotel. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like she's draining money out of rich people that are coming to her for help. And then yeah. just buy a fancy new office space. So John Herbert announced that uh, he was there in response to a telegram from Margaret Conway and that he agreed with her. It was time for Dora to leave the sanitarium. And in fact, he was here to do just that. And again, 
Linda Hazard stated that she was Dora's officially appointed guardian, appointed due to her weakened mental state, and that no one was able to do anything with Dora without Hazard's consent. So while uh, Linda Hazard left to meet with her lawyer about her decision whether or not to allow John Herbert and Margaret Conway to leave with Dora, John Herbert traveled to Alala to meet with Margaret Conway and to plan their means of removing Dora, uh, whether the Hazards liked it or not. So when Hazard returned to Alala later, she presented John Herbert with a letter from her lawyer that stated that Dora was not allowed to leave the premises until her account was settled and paid in full accompanied by a bill for $2,000. And when challenged by John Herbert that the bill showed no no itemized expenses or list of treatments rendered, Hazard shot back with the statement that as a licensed specialist, she was able to charge whatever she wished for her services. And I hate that she's right. So basically at this point, she's just holding them hostage until she gets more money out of them. So John Herbert, he's an experienced businessman. He recognized extortion when he saw it. He also recognized that paying the absorbent fee was the fastest way to get Dora away from Hazard. So he starts fighting to negotiate the price down. He eventually left the office with a newly typed bill that could only be drawn from Dora's account with Dora's signature, with Dora's expressed permission. He returned to the office with... uh, $250 in traveler's checks and the note payable in three months or $250, which added to the $375.90 that had already been credited to the hazards. So in all, the final price for Dora's Freedom was $875.90. They were also given back the sisters' belongings that the hazards had taken. But the one item that the hazards did not have that Linda asked Margaret about was Claire's diary. She claimed that she did not know where the diary was, but that Claire had wanted Linda Hazard to have it. But neither John Mm, Herbert. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, Claire wanted me to have her diary in which she talked about all of the treatments that I gave her and will definitely make me look guilty in the future. But neither John Herbert nor Margaret produced the diary, so the Hazards had to let it go. When they were finally away from Wilderness Heights on the ferry back across the Puget Sound, Margaret produced Claire's diary from her trunk where she had hidden it (laughs) and read the final entry dated May 19th, which is the day that Claire Williamson died. And this is the final entry in the diary. Uh, My wishes. Dr. Hazard shall have full charge of my remains after death. The money I have provided for her and the balance shall be hers after all expenses have been paid. The ashes to be buried in Olala by my cabin. My things shall remain with my cabin for life. An exact list to be taken, to be kept by Dr. Hazard to do with as she wishes. Essentially, it's a it's a will and testament. Uh, I earnestly wish that Margaret will give to Nellie a jewel for her kindness to me throughout my sickness and to my sister. Also to one Miss Robinson, my diamonds shall go to Dr. Hazard that Claire gave to me and my death shall go to Dora if she is alive. She can never be repaid for love and tenderness and care. For peace and comfort of my little home, I can never repay. My wish is call my cabin, Cabin Claire. Uh, Margaret noticed several things. Uh, Namely that the handwriting of this entry did not match the rest of the entries. There were also a ton of spelling mistakes while Claire was always very quite precise about her spelling. 
but noticeably it was the sentence, my diamonds shall go to Dr. Hazard that Claire gave me and that my death shall go to Dora if she is alive. Note that third person reference to herself. Yeah. Uh, it became, it's now very clear to Margaret Conway and to John Herbert that one, this passage was not written by Claire, but was written by Linda Hazard, who slipped up while writing it, and that two, she was fully counting on Dora to die as well. Uh, once Dora was gone from Wilderness Heights, John Herbert sought a vice of a uh, British vice council uh, based in Tacoma, Washington, to investigate whether there was significant cause to bring criminal charges against the hazards. While Lynn Hazard, uh, clearly sensing a storm was coming her way, hired lawyers of her own and began closing ranks uh, of all of those who had been involved in the care of the Williamson sisters, who she believed could be relied upon to only say what she wanted them to say. Uh, <laughs> namely like a lot of the nurses at the institution her oh husband, the nurses she had been threatening the nurses she had been threatening her oh. husband her son who also worked on the uh, grounds as a groundskeeper and uh their lawyer um the uh british vice council whose name he has a wonderful name his name is lucian agassiz i love Save. that lucian agassiz oh I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that last name. A-G-A-S-S-I-Z. That's how I'd say it. Agassiz. Ah, beautiful name. Uh, he immediately began uh, taking steps to remove Linda Hazard's name from Dora's guardianship papers and to remove her as executor of Claire's estate. Uh, he enlisted the help of uh, lots of attorneys, including uh, uh, several who were experts in cases involving fraud. Uh, during the hearing to determine whether the Hazard's claim on the Williamson estate was valid. Probably the biggest blow came when the Hazard's own lawyer admitted on the witness stand that he had never been an attorney for the Williamson sisters at the sanitarium, uh, which is what the Hazard's had been claiming. They were like, oh, our lawyer was also their lawyer. And their, that lawyer on the stand was like, no, I wasn't. Oh. <laughs> he denied that he had ever been told that he he denied he ever told Linda Hazard to take charge of Dora's affairs under a guardianship, and he denied that he ever drew up the papers that said so. He sensed the storm that was coming so, and went, I'm like, gonna distance myself. Yeah, he's like, I would still like to practice law after this. Going to- <laughs> so after this hearing, Linda Hazard's claim of guardianship was null and void, as was her claim over the estate of Claire Williamson. And she was ordered by the courts to return the majority of the money that she had taken from the sisters, with the exception of $597 for medical services and expenses. However, uh, that hearing was only the beginning. <laughs> uh, the judge in that hearing left no doubt to uh, the people in attendance who was responsible for what happened at William at Wilderness Heights, saying, think of this weak, emaciated young woman lying on her back in the woods of Kitsap County. Dr. Hazard may not have realized what she was doing, but such a person is a dangerous person to administer to women and children. So that hearing for uh, Dora and Claire Williamson, that opened the door of possibility of bringing uh, criminal charges to Linda Hazard. Uh, for other things later. So all the lawyers got to work. <laughs> they started diving deeper into the case of specifically of Clara and Dora, and they found, uh, and obviously they found that Clara uh, was not the only 
uh, wealthy individual to die, or in Dora's case, to almost die while under the care of the hazards. And they were not the only ones to have signed over large portions of their estates to Linder Hazard right before their untimely death. Huh, how strange. Hmm. Almost like there's a pattern there. Ooh, almost. A former state legislature, Louis E. Radar, had once even owned the property where the sanitarium was located, which is where the name Wilderness Heights came from. That was the name that Louis E. Radar had given his land. Huh. Weird. Uh, Louis E. Radar died in May of 1911 after being under treatment, the treatment of Linda Hazard. Uh, a wealthy British man named John Flux came to America to buy a ranch. He went to the sanitarium for help with an illness. Oh, he died with uh, merely $70 left to his name at the end. Huh, weird. A wealthy New Zealand man by the name of Eugene Wakelin was reported to have died by suicide while undergoing treatment at the sanitarium. Hazard, having gotten herself appointed and ministered to his estate, drained it completely. Oh, God. So all in all, the total number of patients to die under the care of Linda Hazard between 1908 when the sanitarium opened and 1911 when Linda Hazard was charged with the manslaughter of Claire Williamson was 14 people. Uh, these people, I'm going to list all their names now, Mrs. Uh, Elgin Cox, uh, Stacey Maud Hagland, Ida Wilcox, Blanche B. Tyndall, Viola Heaton, Eugene Stanley Wakeland, Maud Whitney, Earl Edward Eardman, L.E. Radar, Frank Southern, C.A. Harrison, Ivan Flux, Lewis Ellsworth, Lewis Ellsworth Radar, and Claire Williamson. And these are the people confirmed to have died directly while under Hazard's care. It's possible the actual number is higher, but those were either never confirmed or never discovered. So on August 15th, 1911, Linda Hazard was arrested on charges of first-degree murder for the death of Claire Williamson. And during the time leading up to the trial, it became apparent that although the official trial would not take place until the following winter, the trial in the media was already full steam ahead taking place in the newspapers. <laughs> the media is good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Following the arrest of Linda Hazard, reporters seized on the opportunity to publish interview after interview with both Hazard herself and Dory Williamson, each interview commenting on and offering contradiction as to what the other had said in a previous interview. But the following January, the real trial began at the county courthouse in Port Orchard, the county seat, which is about 13 miles outside of Seattle. There were spectators jammed into the building <laughs> to watch as nurses and servants from the sanitarium uh, testified one after the other about the horrors that were inflicted upon the Williamson sisters during their time at Wilderness Heights, about treatments involving hours-long enemas, baths with water so hot it scalded, extreme dietary restrictions even when the sisters begged for food, and even the extreme restriction of water consumption. There were witnesses called forth to testify about what the prosecution was calling financial starvation regarding the forged checks, letters, and other fraud that served to drain the Williamson estate. And there were even rumors that the hazards were involved in a scheme with the mortuary that led to switching Claire's body with that of a healthier woman so that no one would see the extreme emaciation of Claire at the time of her death. 
uh, despite there being evidence that the mortuary in question had transported Claire's body from Olala to the mainland without necessary removal permits required uh, from the health department, this rumor was never proven to be true. But that also means it was never proven to be untrue, so we can speculate wildly. <laughs> Hazard, of course, obviously, steadfastly maintained she did not have any responsibility for Claire's death or and or the deaths of any of her other patients that had died under her care, but rather that they died from pre-existing conditions and bodily toxins too advanced for even her treatments to cure. She sounds, I mean, she's got a script and she's sticking to it. Uh, she also maintained that this trial was an attack on her as a successful woman in medicine, a scapegoat in the battle between conventional medicine. Fucking and course. Medicine. The fact that there were legitimate women in medicine that were really actually fighting that battle to be taken seriously as women in medicine. And then she comes up and she's like, and also me, I'm under attack for being a woman. They're like, that's not why you're under attack. You're under attack because you killed people. <laughs> like, ugh. She's the worst. It's the absolute worst. Uh, her, like, maintaining that she was under attack, like, as a scapegoat in the battle between conventional medicine and alternative medicine. There were other prominent names in the alternative medicine field that agreed with that and offered public support. Uh, such supporters were Dr. Henry S. Tanner, who was a doctor who had publicly fasted for 40 days in New York in the 1880s to tout the benefits of mass fasting as a medical practice. He offered to testify on behalf of Hazard in order to call conventional uh, medical methods into question and support Hazard's uh, treatment practices. Um, funnily enough, the defense did not take him up on that offer. <laughs> they were like, no, thank you. <laughs> No, thank you. We have enough. Um, we have enough of that <laughs> in the courtroom already. Thank you, no. But uh, she drew on examples from history as defense of her treatments, uh, citing practicing yogis as modern practitioners. Uh, we already talked about her citing ancient Greeks and Jesus as her examples. Uh, now she's also mentioning Pythagoras and Moses and John the Baptist, all recognizing the spiritual power of fasting. Maybe don't pull Pythagoras into things. Yes, he did some cool math stuff. He also started a cult. So maybe don't drag Pythagoras into your defense arguments. Maybe. Uh, she also brought up Cotton Mather. No, do not bring up the Puritans. Yeah, she brought up Cotton Mather, who thought that prayer and fasting would rid Salem of its witchcraft epidemic. Cotton Mather's, like, the minute you bring up Cotton Mather's in a defense argument for scientific, like, medical research, you come off as unhinged. Yeah, I just, yeah. Uh, funnily enough, the jury was not particularly moved by Hazard's defense and her claims of persecution. No! kidding you uh, don't say uh, after a short deliberation hazard was convicted of manslaughter she was sentenced to hard labor at the penitentiary in walla walla washington i love the name i do love the name of walla walla washington um <laughs> i have in my notes here a city whose name i only recognize because it is a stop on the oregon trail computer game <laughs> <laughs> uh, her medical license was also revoked uh, she served, you would guess, you would guess how long she served. 17 months. 
It's like a year and a half. Close. Two years. She did two years in prison. For 14 deaths and fraud and theft? She was only charged with one death. I don't know if they ever charged her with the other ones. But uh, so she served two years in prison before she was pardoned by the governor. We don't know why. We do know that in those two years, she intermittently fasted in order to prove her point and the validity of her own regimen. I, I don't even know. Uh, so after she was released from prison, she moved to New Zealand for a brief time. And then in 1920, she returned to Alala to finish building the sanitarium. Uh, the whole time the, the Williams sisters were at Wilderness Heights, they were actually staying in Hazard's like house rather than a completed sanitarium complex. So yeah. Uh, when the complex was completed in 1932, she called the completed building a, quote, school for health. The Institute only lasted three years before it burned to the ground in 1935. <laughs> I call that cosmic justice. So by then, Hazard was in her early 70s and she was starting to suffer from age-related illnesses. So, of course, she undertook a fasting cure. Surprisingly, it didn't work, and she died in June of 1938. Um, I'm going to guess that is because she had a pre-existing condition and the toxins in her bodies were uh, too far in, and she was she started the fast too late. The fast too late? What can we say? <laughs> so obviously, uh, Hazard, as we said at the beginning, was not the only person to tout the merits of fasting as a cure-all. Uh, we mentioned her mentor Edward Dewey who was advocating for fasting as a cure for ailments. Uh, in addition to Hazard, uh, Dewey's own publisher Charles Haskell wound up writing a book that upheld the merits of fasting and promoted the idea of starving yourself for your health. <sighs> Another very notable, perhaps more notable than Dewey or Haskell, name that got behind the fasting train was noted author Upton Sinclair. I'm kind of sad about that because he was a good author. Uh, he wrote uh, The Jungle, which kind of laid out the conditions of the meatpacking industry in the early 19th century. But he also wrote a book called The Fasting Cure, which was published in 1911, right around the same time that the Williamson sisters started their treatment. Yeah. And Linda Hazard. So, yeah, Upton Sinclair, he was on the fasting train. Choo uh, choo. Yeah. And obviously, uh, the idea of fasting is still around today in the form of juice cleanses, calorie deprivation diets that I brought up earlier, the terrible, terrible fermented cabbage juice diet. Uh, and then there's also even the existence of, I don't know if it's pronounced breatharians or breatharians, uh, but they are people who try to live on light and air alone, like plants. You Do cannot... they realize that they're not plants? Yeah, I was like, so side note. This does not work. Humans are not plants. And even then, you would need water. <laughs> None of these things are healthy or beneficial to the human body. So, like, that's the end of all this, like, fasting is not good for you. And in the, like, and we already said, like, the very few exceptions are, like, for medical, like, you're, you need to fast because you're having blood work done. You need to fast because you're having surgery. You need, like, very, very few, very specific medical things call for very brief fasting. It's usually like at the most 12 hours. Yes. Some fun at the end here, some just fun bonus facts that are 
trying to end on a happier note here are some fun things okay. dora williamson relocated to australia after she escaped from wilderness heights while she never returned to full health and needed specialized care uh she did uh live uh she lived for quite a while after that as she ultimately passed away in 1932 but she lived is the important thing uh in reviewing a list of patients who uh, met their demise at the hands of linda hazard the prosecution started kind of drawing comparisons between linda hazard and bell gunnis the the lady from indiana who made it a practice to place ads in newspapers seeking wealthy suitors with the promise of equally rich housewife waiting for them and then when they show up with their land deeds and their money she would kill them um yes. that's not necessarily like a fun fact i just think it was like the the during this trial the prosecution was like look at these two things that are kind of similar a little bit i would just think it's interesting don't you think it's interesting <laughs> interesting these two very strong women luring in wealthy people and then killing them for their money we just think it's interesting (laughs) um i mean it's they do have they had a lot in common um bell gunnis killed suitors for their assets linda hazard uh killed uh for their assets both women possessed a strong will over those around them both published advertisements in newspapers to gain the attention of the people they wished to gain money from both were physically strong women of tall stature. They both use rural location, kind of out of the way. And uh, both women did not suffer fools easily. So kind of cool. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Both very terrible, terrible women. Um, And um, one of Hazard's patients, uh, this is my last last bonus fact. Uh, One of Hazard's patients, uh, Daisy Maud Hagland, uh, she left behind a three-year-old son named Ivar. Ivar Hagland went on to establish a successful seafood restaurant in Seattle, which still bears his name today. The Ivar's chain of restaurants now has 21 fast casual seafood bars and three full service restaurants, which uh, include Ivar's Acres of Clams, Ivar's Salmon House, and Ivar's uh, Mukledho Landing. And I just thought this was something nice to end on. Although his mother died at the hands of a woman who was praised for starvation, Ivar Hagelin has fed millions of people. Aww. And I thought that was a nice thing to end on. So that is the story of Linda Hazard and her terrible, terrible starvation heights. Thanks. I hate it. You're welcome. My, uh, uh, my sources were obviously Starvation Heights by Greg Olson. Great book. Lots more information in it that I could not fit in here because otherwise the episode would have been seven hours long. Uh, there was a Smithsonian Magazine article about her called, uh, the, the name of the article is Doctor Who Starved Her Patients to Death. <laughs> Thanks, Smithsonian. And then there was an Allocation uh, Humanities article, I think was the initial article I saw with her name on it. It just said, Linda Hazard, the Starvation Doctor. So those were all my sources for that. But yeah, that was a huge bummer, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Oh, really great work. I am very bummed out. So, uh, where can people find us? Uh, people can find 
find us if they want to email us. If y'all have questions, comments, concerns, uh, stories you want us to share, uh, you can email us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at trulyfabulouslymonstrous. And we have a Twitter at tfabmonsterpod. Yeah, so um, join us next episode when... Ace, you tell a cryptid. I tell a cryptid. Yes. I have to check my notes. I think I know what I'm doing. Well, we'll, you'll know what we're doing by the time you... Yeah, well, we'll have it figured out by the next episode. We'll be there. We hope you will, too. Bye!